Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time, I covered the Battle of Norlingen, well, the decisive Battle of Norlingen, which was, you know, a decisive battle and victory by the Imperials, crushing the Swedish army, capturing one of their generals, and effectively delivering a major blow to the Swedish reputation, along with the actual military blow. We ended with me covering the losses and such, but I didn't talk about the aftermath, which I will be covering this episode. With the defeat of the Swedes and the late losses of the Imperials, the Imperials claimed a uncontested victory. After a long series of defeats, this major victory proved the murder of Wallenstein was good for the war, at least for the Imperials, and this new command structure was what gave them victory. Again, I don't think it does justify the murder, but from a big picture standpoint, it does. It was similar in fact to what Breitenfeld was to the Swedes years ago, demoralizing the Swedish army, and definitely not helping their cause. The news spread rapidly, reaching Frankfurt on September 12th, refugees flooding to the city. The Hellbrom League delegates fled the city the next day, auctioned the Stierna trying to recover and set a new line of defense on the main. But all the Swedish allies failed to act, Johann George refusing to attack Bohemia in a diversionary attack, Duke George of Brandenburg not moving to his position on the river, and Franconi was abandoned, 4,000 men along with Wilhelm of Weimar retreating to Erfurt, exposing the upper main to the Imperials, who had around 13,000 men advancing from North. Piccolomini took Schweinfurt, and the main Swedish producer of arms and munitions in Germany was destroyed, which was a major blow. The Imperials also ravaged through the Hessen territory of Herzfeld, so yeah, not good. The main army of the Imperials then marched west, bypassing Ulm to enter Stuttgart by September 19th. Wurmberg fully surrendered to the Imperials by November, and only one part of southern Germany held out. The Imperials settled in, and the Spanish marched west, and the Bavarians then took Heidelberg on November 19th, the castle remaining untaken, however. Other Imperial units harassed the retreating men of Bernhard as the routed army moved to Frankfurt, or retreated to Frankfurt. Other Swedish commanders refused orders to join in, fearing their army would become demoralized as well. Hilbron was abandoned, but even in the face of this defeat, Bernhard was kept as senior general, Oxenstierna having no real alternatives to this. He had his character flaws, but he wasn't the worst choice. So... Everything that could have gone bad for the Swedes basically did, and this would take a while to recover from if they could. I'll repeat it later, but the Swedes were definitely in a better position than like, the Dutch were, not the Dutch, the Danish were, and the other rebels by the early part of the war, sort of in the rebellion phase, but it still wasn't good. Southern Germany was lost to the Swedes, and Central Germany was very much hanging on by a thread. Fernando, the Spanish crown prince, leaving other men to deal with the conquest of the Lower Palatine, advanced to Brussels after passing Cologne, reaching Brussels after a 19-day march. Many clergy and noblemen were happy to try to recover their old lands, the Imperials positioned to crush Bernhard between two of their forces. This is very similar to what happened in 1631 with the sides reversed, and arguably worse since the plague had reduced the harvests, and famine and starvation were hitting the German people and everyone else involved in this war. During the imperial advance, Ferdinand was able to restrain his men, keeping them from ravaging through the lands, as, you know, it wouldn't look good. He stopped many collaborators from being too harshly punished, as well as not removing some people from political positions, like keeping the Jesuits from taking over the Wurttemberg University. This seems political nature rather than any sort of altruism, which makes a lot of sense based on his position. He wanted to look good as he negotiated with the separate peace with Saxony, and a horde of rampaging soldiers through the lands of the German princes would not look good. I mean, it wasn't new, but it wouldn't look good. But it was impossible to stop Catholics from enriching and benefiting themselves, taking back lands and money from former owners of land, as well as standard looting, the works, 
I don't need to go over it again. You got it. Catholic administrations were put back into many places quickly, and only a few places held out militarily, like Marienburg and Koenigshofen, which both fell by 1635. Once again, Ferdinand ordered restraint when it was politically expedient, which makes a lot of sense from his perspective, and it is cynical, but you can't judge it even at the time for being very much not altruistic. Oxenstierna tried to salvage what he could from all this, even regathering the Hillebrand representatives, but most of them were done with the fighting, using sax negotiations as a way out. A draft of terms known as the Pirna Note was agreed on by various representatives, primarily Darmstadt and Saxony, by November 24th, 1634. Oxenstierna had to undermine this, using whatever terms he could discover to propagandize, like the suggestion from 1627 that would secure many of the Catholic gains, which would not benefit the Swedes at all. Like he was, Richelieu had his own plans. He himself undermined Oxenstierna, wanting to create a cross-continental alliance with the Hellbron League in Sweden. It was a good time to strike, and they offered Sweden a closer alliance, with the requirement that Sweden hand over Philipsburg, which would give France access to Germany, which Sweden didn't want because they wanted to be the primary benefiters from the war. Sweden, again, didn't want this, but they could see how the wind was blowing. The remaining more militant members of the alliance, seeing France as a better partner, especially since Sweden had lost a major battle. Sweden was also worried because the war between Poland and the Ottomans had come to an end, and the Poles were potentially ready to go back to war with Sweden, which would drag out and force Sweden to pull out of their troops away, which would either be reinforcements or have to pull back their armies, or a good chunk of their armies. France had also already negotiated with Hessen Kassel along with the Dutch, the German land, Hessen Kassel, accepting a French pension and military support. The League then agreed to allow French troops into Philipsburg, although this was nominally under control of the League, the Duke of Württemberg as the commander of the garrison at Philipsburg. Richelieu once again showed his skill at politics. Richelieu once again showed his skill at politics, but for the increasingly less Protestant cause, it would be a big boost to the capabilities to the military of those opposed to the Habsburgs. As a reminder, France at this time was one of the primary military powers in the world, or at least in Europe. So, to have France involved was no light ally. Wurmberg then sent secret representatives to Paris to negotiate with France. The terms were agreed on by November 1st, 1634, which made France the effective head of the League, directly paying 500,000 livres to the League instead of Sweden, cutting them out of the deal. They would also send 12,000 troops though not French ones, to avoid directly going to war with the HRE. The League would also restore Catholic rule over reconquered areas, and lastly, France would gain the Austrian parts of Alsace, Breisach, Constance, and all the forts along the Rhine in between them. France clearly had territorial influence in its mind with these terms, and in the vacuum of power in the losses by the Swedes, it was hard to fully say no to those for those who wanted to keep fighting. And Sweden had already had its ego damaged, so French control would look even worse for them. I mean, I could imagine feeling real bad about you winning the war suddenly and it all turned around on you and now this other person wants to come in and take the credit from you. Well, not credit, but they want to steal glory and get land and you're going to get, oh, shit, your deal. France had already gotten control over many parts of Alsace in the chaos of Nordlingen, the country moving troops in after they were given the land on October 9th, numbering around 24,000 men. The military forces for the League were also scrambled for, with around 18,000 men at Frankfurt along with the garrisons at Mainz, Spire, Hanau, and Heidelberg Castle. A noble by the name of, I'm going to get this wrong, so I think it's French, Fikires, was willing to kidnap Oxenstierna to prevent him from moving Swedish troops to the north to avoid French control, which didn't succeed, but or didn't happen, but the fact that they were willing to do that showed how far France was willing to go. The League then offered Bernhard exclusive control over the army if he kept the troops in the south to protect them. Well, the south, the southern parts of the controlled territory. Oxenstierna reluctantly agreed, although only on the condition that Bernhard remained subordinate to the regent, as he was still the nominal head of the League. 
The treaty giving France control was ratified, but Oxenstierna and the civic leaders refused. And in return, France refused to send them money, but they were forced on military forces to assist the League when the Imperials marched up the Rhine and Gallus tightened the siege of Heidelberg Castle. 7,000 troops were sent under La Forge to assist Bernhard in breaking the siege, arriving on December 22nd. The Imperial troops advancing on the Rhine arrived too late, the French already assisting the Heilbronn League. But even with French help, the Imperials were still on the rise. The soldiers, disguised as peasants, entered Philipsburg, overpowering the garrison of French and League troops on January 24th, 1635. The Imperials under Worth then crossed the frozen Rhine and took Speer on February 2nd. Charles of Lorraine, the duke from the outskirts about France, with 9,000 Bavarians and Imperials, took an occupied Mumpelgard and started retaking Alsace. The force was forced to pull back from relieving the siege, beating back Charles as he rushed back to Alsace. Speer and Alsace were taken back, but this drew men away from the army being created to the Dutch, which would give the Dutch a bit of a harder time, which that war had gone, sort of start again with the Spanish able to more easily advance into their territory, or at least into defend their territory. Laforge was left with 9,000 men who could really fight, forcing him to retreat to rejoin 11,000 reinforcements under Cardinal La Valette, and both men had to deal with Charles trying to retake his old duchy till June of 1635. And back to politics... A diet was convened at Worms on February 17th, 1635, after a month-long recess. Prima note was the purpose, and Lutherans agreed to it, while the Calvinists still refused to accept it. With no agreement, the League effectively dissolved because no one could agree, which I agree in the long term, it's not going to hold out if two sides can't agree on a fundamental thing of who has control, especially in the middle of a war, but again, chaos of the war and all that. Sweden then sent negotiators to France, but Richelieu refused to meet them, shutting down the attempt. France clearly wanted to be the dominant partner, and both sides were unwilling to fully concede to the other. Achenstierner, seeing Richelieu was going to hold out, swallowed his pride and traveled to France with a large retinue, as a sign of power and influence. Both showed each other respect, Louis XIII giving him a ring, but they only really agreed on a treaty of friendship, which was really nothing in terms of actual military aid. France was also caught up in more than a war with Germany in Sweden's negotiations, but we'll have to wait for that next season, as France is going to be the next major player in the war, and the next episode will definitely be coverage of France and the Cardinal Richelieu, or specifically just a biography and the general history of France so we all can get up to date. You know, my usual thing when I introduce a new person to the war, but with the details in this season effectively coming to an end on new content, I thought it would be good to do an overview Starting with the series of events in 1630, the Swedes clearly entered the war better prepared than any other Habsburg enemy, with a professional army and a good amount of money, with some international backing. Gustavus managed to drive the Imperials out of northern Germany after a rough start and got into southern Germany, Breitenfeld being the big event that showed the power of the Swedish military, as I covered, and it's, you know, one of the big, more famous battles of the war. But as the war of attrition began to affect them, Gustavus, having plenty of behind-the-scenes issues with political control, his own charisma and military force able to maintain that, but... There were definitely cracks and more egos involved behind the scenes, which was new to me. And the Imperials were on the back foot on this period. But that changed when Gustavus had at Lutzen, leaving the Swedish military more disorganized, though still capable. But their political control began to slip. The war, and, as the war continued, and as the war continued in 1633, both sides became more exhausted, and Wallenstein dragged down negotiations with various German princes. And, as we learned, he eventually got assassinated about that. But with his death, the newly reorganized Imperials finally pushed back the Swedes with the help of the Spanish, who were now more actively involved in the war, although not technically at war with 
Between it's complicated, and like we covered in the last two episodes, Northern was the end of the phase of the war, or this phase of the war, and late 1634 was just a long retreat from the Swedes. Although it should be noted, like I mentioned earlier, that the Swedes were in better shape than any other imperial opponent in the last year of their part of the war, and they weren't knocked out just yet, just on the back foot. Most people by this point were ready to surrender or had no way or way to fight back, whereas the Swedes could still form a defensive line technically. And as for my thoughts, it is certainly the instant part of the war for me. It was the part I knew the most about, relatively speaking, but that was mostly on Gustavus. But it was eye-opening to me to see how disorganized the Swedes actually were controlling their allies, especially as time went on and that unified front became harder and harder to maintain. It's also interesting how much Gustavus strong-armed everyone into following him, which makes a lot of sense, but the third military force in his natural charisma was good at keeping control. The Swedes did very well opposing an army, well, an empire like the HRE, but the war attrition was inevitable, and both sides adapted their money-raising strategy to fit their needs, showing they both were adaptable militarily and economically, although both were in major debt at this point and required subsidies and various other financial support. Many famous battles were fought here, particularly Lutzen, Nordlingen, Rettenfelds, and plenty of others. This is probably the most famous part of the war for most people, at least for me in my experience. Most people know about Gustavus and all that. And many advances like the creation of a professional army would, well, not the first professional army, but the first really permanent army in Europe at the time. Again, so we said the Dutch did it, but not to the scale the Swedes could do it. And as time went on, these armies would become standard, but but for now, the Swedes were the ones with the standing army. Although, discipline had probably broken down a bit since then. And I do feel bad for Wallenstein, as he had more and more pressure put on him, and he had more and more stuff to worry about. And I can't help but feel bad for him, and he kind of grew on me, especially when his death was clearly kind of not deserved. Like, yes, they justified it from a political sense, but morally, it was done in such a shady way that lifted my taste in my mouth reading about it. I get why, but it doesn't mean I like it. He made some blunders and all that, and he definitely wasn't at his best by the end of the war, but a war like that would drag down anyone, especially if they were actively commanding the whole war front. And on a final just note, I think I've covered it before, but this phase of the war was the most destructive so far, with hundreds of thousands of people dying, either in battle, looting, pillaging, or just disease and starvation. Behind all this talk of battle, politics, heroism, all of that, skilled command. This was a nightmare to live in, as I hope that you guys realize. Again, if you weren't killed in battle or your family members taken to war, you were starving in your village, you were in a revolt and being put down by soldiers, you had people massacred, hangings, even if it's not religious, it's just general soldier stuff, or just the famine and disease going around. People going into debt, not just the countries, but the people going into debt, especially nobles, maybe having to raise money to keep paying for their contribution. I can imagine this is draining on the entire economy, and central Germany was probably in ruin as all these towns were getting looted and pillaged. Like I'll say, no matter who was winning the war, the commoners and the less wealthy were losing, because their sons were getting dragged into the war, their fathers, their husbands, their brothers. Hell, they probably had some camp followers who were maybe related, if they, their mother, their sister. Behind all this, and if you guys are picking sides, you remember this part of it. But we still have 13 more years to go, so buckle up. Thank you all for listening, for keeping me coming back to work on this. You guys are really important for keeping me come back to the podcast, to keep putting out new episodes, so... Thank you for listening. Again, there's going to be a longer break for the next season episode, and I will be potentially splitting season four into two seasons if it comes long enough. I don't know. I have to plot it out, but this is a heads up. That just might be what's happening. As it's 13 years, whereas the other three seasons covered 
17 years of the war or so. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3dcot at gmail.com. Reminder that of Patreon. Thanks those who support me. Interview and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. Oh yeah, also, I was featured in a podcast showcase on globalcomment.com. I will be posting the link down below in the links themselves. So please check that out and spread the word and show it to your friends if they're interested or family or whatever. So bye again. Bye.